Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Whoa, new sponsor. Thanks, Thumbtack. Today's episode is brought to you by Thumbtack. People tell me Thumbtack is great. Let me just describe what they do. They make it easy for you to find and hire a skilled local professional for anything possible that's on your to-do list. From home improvement projects to event planning to personal wellness, Thumbtack makes it easy to find pros for pretty much anything you need done. Download the app or try it now at Thumbtack.com. That's Thumbtack.com. Today's show is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter can help you find the right hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 job sites with just one click. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, this second, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Today on The James Altucher Show. All in the same weekend, what happened was a close friend attempted suicide and a family member died. So I took a week and a half off. I was at the point where I I just had to take care of myself and spent the next year basically trying everything that I could to get myself out of that state of anxiety, which again is, you know, we all experience anxiety on some level, but but not like this. This was different. This was debilitating. It was... I found myself isolated because I didn't want anybody I interacted with to catch this weird energy that I had. It felt like I was contagious and I felt like I was losing my mind. It felt like I was dying and um, it destroyed so many things in my life. I think it was a number of factors which were chronic sleep deprivation, chronic play deprivation, Chronic play deprivation. Yeah. I like that phrase. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think many people suffer from that. I, do, I 100% agree. There's a quote in there from Stuart Brown. He's the author of Play. And that's the book that was my 180 moment. It was the aha that led to recovering in a couple of weeks, which he says the opposite of play isn't work, it's depression. Hmm. So 
So, Charlie Hone, this is the second time I've had you on, but maybe people probably don't even realize the first time, which was three yeah. years ago. You wrote a book called Play It Away. Yeah. How basically playing saved you from enormous anxiety and panic attacks and made your work life much better. And I feel like this next book, this upcoming book, Play for a Living, which is beautifully designed. I'm holding it in my hand now. Uh, this is kind of an extension of that, just how play uh essentially makes life much better whether you're a hard worker or not a hard worker or whether you want to be a success or whatever play is a critical component of that so welcome back to the show thank you james but you know before i get to this book um i want to talk about a facebook post you did uh a few months ago about the power of free and maybe describe that post again. I really liked it, and I actually really wanted to plagiarize it right afterwards. <laughs> I think I might have a little bit, actually, so I apologize for that. Oh, please, it's an honor. Steal all you want. Um, so I think the post you're referring to, I, I was just talking about how basically every opportunity that I've created for myself has come about through doing free work. And I think the excuses we come up with for not doing what we want to do uh, are are kind of silly. There, we we think we need somebody to to say, okay, you're hired. Now here's your homework assignment. Go do it. And uh, I I just don't believe it. I mean, I that's why I'm a fan of yours, right? It's it's the choose yourself mentality. Well, it's and if you think about it. it, if you think about every great success, probably this is not true for every great success, but if you think about like ninety percent of them. They started off doing things for free. Like, let's just take Albert Einstein. Okay, his job was to work in, you know, the Swiss patent office. And on the side, for free, he developed a special theory of relativity, which, you know, propelled him to being, you know, considered the smartest person ever. Like, right. that's just the example that first comes to mind. But there are many, many others. Yeah. How did people discover that he was doing it? Like, how did he release that work? He just um, he he submitted it to an academic publication, and they realized, oh, this is a work of genius, <laughs> and they published it. And it wasn't so far; it wasn't like he was thinking forty years ahead of his of his peers. He was thinking like maybe one or two years ahead of his peers. Like other scientists were close to this, so he was extending their work, but in a very creative way because he had this visual way of looking at things. He was able to write about it in this beautiful fashion combined with all the math to back it up. So that's essentially how he did it. But he took that job so that he would have the time, you know, the free time to work on this. So but what, cool. what, what are some other examples from, yeah. from history? Well, I, I can give you a personal example. So last night, uh, a reader of mine named Darvinder picked me up from the airport. And he actually created on the side for fun uh, a thing called Google Hobbies. Now, he doesn't work for Google. He just did it because he thought it would be a really cool idea. And he was learning user experience. So he developed this beautiful uh, user experience for if you wanted to learn guitar or some, some hobby, what that process would be like if you were doing it for free uh, through Google. And he wrote this post and laid out his entire uh, process for building this. And uh, I kind of helped him at the beginning to say, okay, you need like a GIF, a, a movie basically of how this works at, right at the top so people can immediately understand it and everything and why you did it. That blew up. 
And he had all these uh, companies reaching out to him and asking him, like, you know, basically, can you do these types of projects for us? And I've I've had um, a number of readers do similar things, just reaching out to people that they thought were doing great work and offering to work for them for free. And if you look at it, like, take something like Twitter. You know, mm-hmm. the company, the original company was called Odeo. It was actually a podcasting app maybe a little before its time. Mm-hmm. And Jack Dorsey was just sort of in the corner working on this, like, SMS chat app for free, you know, as a side project. I mean, I think a lot of companies, like, yeah. um, I think even Instagram might have just been, like, yeah. a side project. That's what, that's what I was thinking of as well. What did it start off as? Was, Gosh, I forget. Like, the, the photo filter was just a feature a side thing, yeah, and that ended up being the most popular element of the app, and then they just made that the whole app, and it took off. And and for you, I mean, basically every job you've ever gotten is because you initially started doing stuff for free, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, just to go back to your original question, historically, Warren Buffett. I mean, he got his start uh, working for was it Ben Graham? Yeah, Benjamin Graham. Yeah, who who he offered to work for him for free and Ben Graham said you're overcharging and he said that was, you know, the best best move of his career. And then, you know, even when he was working for Ben Graham for free and they they had a great relationship. They got along very well, but Warren Buffett eventually did want a full-time job, but uh do you know why Ben Graham couldn't offer him a job? Did you ever hear that story? I, do, I don't I don't know. Because um so many Wall Street firms at the time were not hiring Jewish people. So Ben Graham was hiring Jews and Warren Buffett was not Jewish. Really? So he sent Warren Buffett back to Omaha. No and kidding. That was the end of that. <laughs> but of course, they, you know, were best friends for, for life. But uh, yeah. uh, that it was sort of reverse anti Semitism at work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you don't hear about that too often. And, and Warren Buffett, if you think about it, he's a, another great example. He started his. His first business was a hedge fund, and most hedge funds charge a fee up front as well as a, fr- a fee on the profits. So if you were gonna, if I started a hedge fund and you were gonna give me a million dollars, I would charge you first a two percent fee. So twenty thousand dollars goes right off the top into my pocket. Warren Buffett uh, did not do specifically did not do that. He charged zero percent. So he would take your money, charge you nothing, and then he would charge 25% of the profits, but only if you returned more than, I think it was 6%, only if he returned more than 6% on your money. So he was basically, up until that first 6% of your profits, he made no money off of any of his clients. And through that kind of almost free fee structure, he became a billionaire. Did he do that to um, earn clients' trust faster, or did he do it because he knew long-term it was a much better deal for him? Well. I think both approaches almost seem Machiavellian in that, you know, I don't think he was thinking that far ahead. I I think maybe there was a little bit of, you know, nobody would trust a kid. He was only, he was a very Mm, young guy. No one would trust essentially a kid with their money if he was just taking money up front. But I think he really felt it was unfair to take any money unless he proved his value above and beyond the typical Wall Street firm, which took fees left and right. So I think there was a combination of him thinking he needed to prove his value uh, and then also earning the the trust. Right. Yeah. Which, which part of it is a lot of it with all of these things, even with your own situations, is is earning trust as well as, you know, 
doing something for free because you want to, you know, show your value. Right. Uh, so it's That's a why you do this podcast too. Yeah, I mean, look, the podcast, everybody listens to it for free. I write, you know, ninety nine percent of the things I I write, I write totally for free. My books are ninety nine cents or you know, however low Amazon can let me price them. So, so what are some other uh, great examples? Uh, personally, or, or from both? Okay, so uh, I had one that came to mind. It was Jim Carrey. You know, just going to the comedy store over and over. He was driving dozens of miles. I think close to fifty miles sometimes uh, to Yuck Yucks Comedy Store night after night. Uh, wouldn't pay for their even his parking stuff, but he just kept showing up over and over until he got good enough. Uh, you know, and that's true for many. If you look at the careers creative, of many comedians, yeah. like um, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Robin Williams, they all performed at um, a place called the Comedy Store in LA mm -hmm. in the seventies, and they specifically did not get paid. So, and all of them, of course, went on to huge mega careers because because it takes a long time to build the skills to to do what they ended up doing later yeah. on and they just built those skills for free night after night yeah yeah exactly and uh personally i um when i when i got out of college i i it was 2008 and i spent three months applying to about 100 jobs that i didn't really want like what uh ad agencies, uh, the middle management positions at uh, corporate companies that I just didn't really feel aligned with uh, their products or their values. Uh, I, I reached a point where I got so desperate that I was applying to uh, like audio, audio staging uh, companies that set up equipment for bands and stuff. And um, not that that's a, a bad job, but it's not one you go to college for, you know? Um, so kind of got slapped with re the reality of the situation and I just decided okay I'm I'm going to work for free for people that are doing things that are aligned with what I love and what I really want to learn about and people I really respect um I'm and I I told my parents I'm just going to give this a shot see if it works out I'm not making any progress whatsoever doing the traditional route and none of my friends were either you think it's um, getting harder and harder for people? I mean, this kind of goes along with a lot of stuff I believe in, but you think yeah. it's getting harder and harder for people coming out of four-year degrees to get jobs that uh, satisfy them in some way? Um, like when you look at your friends and peers and so on? Yeah, I, I think that it's hard if you have certain expectations of the old world mm -hmm. uh, where you're you're hoping you're going to have a, a job that lasts 10, 20, 30 years. That's just not going to happen, right? And I, I still see that expectation is that, you know, I'm, I'm just going to, I just need this secure, stable job. It's, just, it's not happening. These companies are laying off those people. So I, what, what I did was um, I, I worked for free for Ramit Sethi, our friend Ramit. Um, and how'd you, how'd you pitch him? I pitched him because I had just finished up a virtual internship with Seth Godin. And uh, me and about a dozen others uh, around the world were participating in that. And I, I messaged him and I said, I, I'm a huge fan of, of your work. It's, it's made an impact on my life. And I actually took a screenshot of my, how I was spending my money. So Ramit does, I will teach you to be rich. And, uh, 
and I said, I, I noticed that you um, are actually really good on video. You're a natural on video, uh, but you don't do it very often. And it could have this great effect on, on your marketing. It could build a stronger relationship with your readers. It shows a more human side to you because sometimes it's hard to understand in your writing what kind of person you are if, if you're this gruff person or you're sarcastic. Uh, so I said, I, I'm a video editor. I'd be happy to edit any videos that you shoot and make them look good, and uh, I'll do it for free. And um, he said, yeah, that sounds great. Send me a sample of your work. Um, and, and we started doing that, and then I ended up helping him with marketing his book, his first book, and uh, that did well. How did you market the book? Well, because that was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, it was a it was a bestseller. Um, it hit number one overall on Amazon, which at the time Twilight was dominating on wow, Amazon. I didn't so know was, that about that. Yeah, book. yeah, it it happened for a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the um, what what we did was he and I b- both created marketing plans independently, and then just compared notes and and just combined them into into one. And as I recall, the the focus was. We gotta we gotta do like a live stream all day long, and get as many people on that, and just incentivize them to buy the buy a book now. And I think we actually uh, bended some rules to to do that. So we were doing contests where if you buy the book, you're entered into win uh, like a thousand dollars from Mint for to start a savings account, which. We found out like midway through the contest, you can't do that. If you, if you want to do a contest, you can't create uh, a purchase as the ticket in. Oddly oh, yeah, enough. Amazon has a rule about that? Uh, it's not Amazon. It's just legal. Oh, okay. That's the rule. Uh, but, but nobody, we, it's not like the police right, are going to show up at your door. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, run uh, a bogus. <laughs> right. You're giving away a thousand dollars. Yeah, how dare you? you? Yeah. So we were giving away Kindles and stuff, and so we we got all these orders to happen in a in a tight time frame. So it was it was my first personal like professional win, and uh, from there I I started reaching out to other authors. So, so let's break that down though. Yeah. You basically researched uh, a guy that you admired, Ramin, mm-hmm. and. Um, you found out maybe the one hole in his marketing where he could do a lot better mm-hmm. and it matched your skill set and you kind of gave him a plan of how you could help him do that. Yeah. He did it and it had positive results mm-hmm. and that becomes a, a, a huge mark on your resume. Yeah, yeah. And it took it took some time and I didn't come to him and say, hey, your website design sucks because I, I'm not a web designer. I see right. that problem a lot uh, or that mistake that people make is they, they just point out flaws in right. people's stuff. and it's, I get that all the time. Yeah, it's not, it's not cool to do that unless you're proactively handing them a solution. So That's really important. Yeah. And you hand them solution. And by the way, you don't necessarily have expectations. No, because it's a gift. He could have... Rami could have said, hey, you're right. Yeah. I do have a video guy I'm about to hire. Thanks a lot. Keep yeah. in touch. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, and that would have been fine. A lot too. of it's timing, yeah. right? Is, is I mean, I, I was keeping pace with Ramit's work and I could kind of I'd done so much research and digging into 
it, delicious bookmarks was a thing at the time, right? It was yeah, it was really active. Yeah, I, Ramit used it prolifically, so I was able to see exactly what he was studying. I I so miss delicious books bookmarks. That was, was a so great, great little website, and then oh. Yahoo bought it for ten million. I want to say in two thousand. Six, yeah, and uh, they had just finished a funding round, uh, so or no, they were about to do a funding round. I remember it was Josh Shackman. Is that mm. that makes? I, I forget his name. And Yahoo bought it for ten million, and then just trashed the whole thing. It like disappeared. It was devastating. Yeah, it was a for good me, like, had, social sharing yeah. site. Oh yeah, all the all my smartest friends were using it to share smart things that we were reading and strategy and stuff. So it was it was a blow when that went down, but. At the time, I felt like I was hacking into these guys' minds, right? Yeah. Um, so I did that with Ramit. Then I reached out to our friend Tucker Max and uh, similar thing where I said, you know, I, I just, uh, I've, I've worked with uh, or did this virtual internship with Seth Godin. I just helped Ramit with his book and I knew that his, his movie was coming out. And I said, if you need any help with marketing or video, I can, I can do both of those things. And, um, at this point, I'd been blogging for about six months. I had, I think, 20 readers total. And sh it shocked me that Tucker was actually one of them. Mm. And he said, I actually know who you are. I subscribed to your blog. And uh, so he said, yeah, we can. I'd be happy to, to do something together. And we ended up working together as well. And um, both of those guys eventually recommended me to Tim Ferriss, and he and I ended up working together for a few years. So, so basically, as opposed to working for you know at the bottom up from uh, like an ad agency or an audio agency or whatever, you um, ended up because you started offering free services to Seth Godin, to Rami, to Tucker, uh, and then to Tim. You basically kind of built these relationships with all these influencers, and then course you started writing books and becoming an influencer yourself so it kind of catapulted into this dream career now you're working with uh tucker on on book in a box yeah yeah i mean eight or nine years later you know that cold email turned into man so much more than a working relationship a, a really great friendship and uh just, just a ton of stuff what what is i mean again you see this all through history like there's, there, it feels like there are two types of jobs. There's kind of the standard institutional jobs where you have a certificate that qualifies you for a low-level entry job and you start rising up through that. And then there's the type of jobs that are skill-dependent, like, let's say, music, art, even business or entrepreneurship. And it seems like those require a lot more of the willing to do free. Yeah. You know, because there's no formal pay structure. Oh, we're going to pay you to be the greatest musician in the world. Right. Because <laughs> you're starting off with no skills by definition and we'll pay you to learn how to perform on a stage and have a top 10 hit on Billboard uh, along the way and you'll be a huge success. Like you yeah. have to take a sacrifice to hit that top. Yeah, and and you know the the irony is that uh, you know Ryan Holiday actually pointed this out to me. He said the irony is that we for for certain professions we are quick to say don't work for free. What a ripoff, right? It, it, it you don't deserve or you deserve to be paid what you're worth, um, and yet for every athlete 
we expect them to play through college. And in fact, there are rules to prevent them from leaving college uh, before uh, they can go on to the professionals to make millions of dollars. And the, and the odds of that are so low, they're effectively zero. So there's, there's this weird disconnect when you tell people to work for free, the, the reaction is no, no, no. But yeah, some people been, make it like a rule, like I'll never work for free. I get paid for insane. everything I do. You've been working for free your whole life in school. Particularly on the things that you love. You've yeah. been spending the most time, when you're growing up, you spend the most time outside of school on things you love. Nobody loves being like a paper boy. They love, you know, playing Minecraft or right. playing tennis or, you know, studying. Or exploring yeah. or hanging out with their friends or the and, and you're brought into school where your spontaneity and your impulses are are muted and you're forced to work on stuff that frankly it's it's not that interesting to you the vast majority of the time. You're just going through the motions. And I think that's why it is so important to work for free because you have to tap back into what matters to you. You know, you, you've, you've been conditioned for so long to do something else that other people want you to do. And if you allow that to carry through the rest of your life, you sort of lose touch with yourself. So I, that's why I'm a huge believer in free work. It's, is it, becomes from, it comes first from that place that's as close to play as you can describe, you know, you would do it even if you weren't being graded, uh, told what to do, paid. You're doing it for the joy and the amusement of doing it. Right. And, and it's interesting because a lot of people say, uh, oh, I, I, I don't even, you know, this is the sort, you know, a lot of great successful people say, oh, this is the, even though I'm getting paid millions of dollars, let's say someone like Jay Leno, who was hosting the Tonight Show for 22 years, he said, even though I'm getting paid, you know, these millions of dollars, I would come to work every day and just do this for free. Yeah. So a lot of people do say that, but why do you think the kind of professions we value most as a, as a society? So whether it's a scientist or, um, you know, the guys who created Google or a musician or artist or writer, these things that we value the most are also the exact things that <laughs> have to start off by people doing for free. Like nobody is willing to pay these people until even though it's they're doing things that are going to change society the most or impact society the most. Yeah. What do you think? Well, it could be that, you know, let's, you know, it, let's look at it from a supply and demand equation. Like, right. Everybody wants to have, I mean, it's part of our genes say that we want to have a contribution and an impact on society. So let's say everybody at some point wants to make a contribution and have impact. And so uh, you actually have to pay people to not have an impact. So, so that they do the jobs. <laughs> That's the that tax. They, they do the jobs that nobody would want to do, you know, to have minimal, you know, nobody wants to just have negative or minimal impact. So you have to pay them to do that. Right. Like you have to pay them to, you know, uh, be a toll booth collector or work in a supermarket yeah. or, um, you know, work a middle, you know, a low level management job at Procter and Gamble. Right. Nobody thinks, oh, nobody when they're a kid thinks that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life to have an impact on the world. Um, so, so you don't need to pay me to be a low-level manager at Procter and Gamble. Right. And so, and to some extent, you're paid 
particularly at the, these low level jobs, you're paid to move away from your dreams. You're not really paid for the job. You're paid to move away from what you really want to do. That you know, if you want to be an astronaut, uh, every I have had three astronauts on this podcast. They would all would have done it for free for their entire lives. Right. Like, um, you you couldn't, you know, they they you know you, you would have to offer them millions of dollars at some other job for them to take them to to pay them right. to move away from their dreams. Yeah. And that's probably true for most of the people I've interviewed. Yeah, I mean, Warren Buffett said in here, take the job you would take if you were independently wealthy. You'll do well at it. And yeah. I, I, yeah, I agree. And I, th- I think the, the, <clears throat> when, when you're starting off doing this work, your, your work is not so good, you know, and... By it, definition almost. Right. Because yeah. let's take anything that requires a skill set to be developed. Like, let's just say... Uh, a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the skill of being musical, and then there's the skill of performing, and there's the skill of yeah. marketing. These are yeah, all yeah. like hard skills. But when you start out, you've listened to music your entire childhood and your entire life. That's why you want to do it. But you have a sense of who the greatest are, who the middle is, and and who the not so great are. And so when you start out, you're almost by definition going to recognize the gap between where you are and where your heroes are. Right. Yeah, it was it Ira Glass who did that great piece on on how far away you are from. I think that is great. Ira Glass. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're just inherently going to be bad for a while, but during during that period, you you get better and better. And now, I I think before recently in history, no one could distribute their work effectively. They couldn't share their gifts with the the world, relatively speaking. Only a few could. But now everyone can do it, so it's never been easier to to do this stuff. It, it's true. Like you can do more than one thing. Mm-hmm. So people think, oh no, I have the ninth job, and then I have the kids, and this and that. I have all these responsibilities. But there's always time to. I I I've just seen it in a million cases. There's always time you can fit in yeah. to do your dream. So I I was talking to one guy who who on his commute to work on the train from Connecticut to New York every day he would write one page of a mystery novel and now he's got like three or four mystery novels written so and he's a successful novelist yeah you know sean platt right yeah 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 he lives in austin too right yeah yeah that's right yeah i mean he's similar i I forget what job he was in uh before but now he he writes fiction and he's one of the most prolific authors on the planet he writes like a novel a month writes ten thousand words a day that's incredible (laughs) it's insane how much do you think he makes a year Oh man, it makes um, a good living. I would probably, uh, if I had to guess, I, I honestly don't know. But if I had to guess, I would say over a quarter of a million dollars a year. Yeah, living in Austin. Fiction. Yeah, young guy. Yeah, he's young. He's one of the most joyful people I've ever met in my life. But yeah, yeah he he wrote me. I wrote him um, a few weeks or months ago, saying, "Oh, I was going to write fiction," and he wrote back and said, uh, "Makes your life so much better writing fiction. Mm. Like it's so much Why? fun." Oh, just the fun of, yeah. of doing it. Yeah, I, I was having this conversation uh, the other day with somebody, and I was I was sort of in the middle of something, so I didn't really dig in my heels. But I've I've heard this a number of times from people who they they only read nonfiction, and they think fiction is effectively a waste of time. And I could just feel my blood boiling when when he said that. I was, oh, just, yeah, because for me, I think I think nonfiction is usually written by 
let's say someone writes a book about, I don't know, astronomy. They've spent 20 years being an expert on astronomy not, and they think that the writing comes easy, but writing is just as hard a skill as being an astronomer or a harder yeah. skill in many cases. Yeah. So I like reading fiction because those are the guys who spent, or, or women, who spent 20 years being great writers. So if I want to be a good writer, which I do, uh, I have to read the great writers. And right. Those are usually the fiction writers. Yeah. So who are some of your favorite uh, fiction writers? Well, I'll read I'll read Raymond Carver almost every day, really. I'll read and reread stories. I've probably read his top stories hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, another writer for me is a guy, Dennis Johnson, again, whose short stories are collected in a book called Jesus' Son about this drug addict who kind of makes it through that. And I've probably read that book two or 300 times. Wow. Um, really? Yeah. Is that the book you've read the most? Probably. That's the book I've read no the kidding. most. No kidding. Why do you read it two to 300 times? Because the if you read that collection of stories, and it's not so much as novels, I hate to put down as novels, but it's really that collection of stories. They are, I bought the collection, I think, first in 1994, and I've probably read it once a month or more since then. Amazing. And it's just every sentence is so amazing and beautiful. I just love it. Do you have a lot of it memorized at this point? Probably, yeah. Yeah. And I've definitely, uh, I mean, I've, I could definitely, you know, quote each story pretty accurately. Like, And I've, I've like written them out, you know, on yeah. some of them, not on everyone, but on some what's of them. A, what's one of, the, one of the quotes that really strikes a chord with you? Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Ugh, I am hiring and it is really hard to find somebody. I have no idea where to post this job. So thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, I can post my job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to my job. But this is why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get qualified candidates in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Today's episode is also brought to you by Thumbtack. Thumbtack makes it easy to find and hire skilled professionals for anything on your to-do list. From home improvement projects to event planning to personal wellness, Thumbtack connects you with professionals offering more than 1,100 different services nationwide. Simply tell Thumbtack a little bit about your project. Then, within 24 hours, you'll have up to five estimates from local pros that match all of your criteria. Check out their prices and reviews. Chat with them directly if you need more information. Pretty much anyone you need to hire is on Thumbtack. And I'm going to test that out. Carpet cleaners, personal trainers, photographers, even piano teachers. They'll help you find pros in over 1,000 different categories in all 50 states. 
I wish I knew about Thumbtack back when I was getting rid of all of my stuff. I threw out all of my belongings a little over a year ago. Those of you who read my blog know all about it. I got a friend to sort everything out and help me to figure out what's trash, what's good for donation. Now I'm going to use Thumbtack to help me find a professional transcriber and a professional translator because I get emails from people in all sorts of countries who wish my podcasts were available in other languages. Seriously, no matter the project, you'll find the help you need on Thumbtack. Thumbtack makes it easy to find pros for pretty much anything you need done. Download the app or try it now at Thumbtack.com. That's Thumbtack.com. What's one of the, one of the quotes that really strikes a chord with you? Um, there was one story. It's called Jack Hotel, and you know they're both drug addicts. They go through this experience, but then they split apart. And the main character has people who care for him. The other guy doesn't. And they both take an overdose. And the story ends with Jack Hotel died. I am still alive. And just that one line sums up this uh, great appreciation of how his life held on by a thread. But yeah. he has such appreciation and gratitude for it that he's able to kind of come back and survive. Yeah. Do you do you love that because it's parallel to to your own experiences? Probably. Yeah. But I've also used that specific line many times in posts. Like I've taken, I've definitely taken from the best. Yeah. You know, um, and I don't know. I just, I've, I read hundreds of books, but I'll read a ton of fiction. I always, Have every day I read fiction. Have you had Raymond Carver on the, or is he still alive? No, he's not alive okay, anymore. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he uh, was a teacher of many great writers, so like Tobias Wolf, uh, oh, yeah, Jane yeah. McInerney, uh-huh. um, Mary Carr, uh, who's been on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was he was a great teacher to a lot of really good writers, as was Dennis Johnson, as was Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, a lot of these guys yeah. learned from Kurt Vonnegut, like the simplicity and almost absurdity of his writing. Right. And uh, uh, so fiction, though, I could do an entire podcast just about fiction because that's really the you main do focus it. of my of my reading. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I'll read nonfiction every day as well. I'll right. balance it off because you get ideas from nonfiction, right. but I'll get the skill from fiction. Well, you can, you can also get ideas from fiction. Yeah. I mean, it's it's creativity. I, who was it? Uh, Arthur C. Clarke. He wrote uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. But he... He wrote fiction about that that predicted satellite communication, and that was sort of the foundation for for that getting invented. From or, my understanding, or you look at a lot of the great writers who who did both. Uh, you know, Isaac Asimov, of course, wrote the iRobot series and the Foundation series, two of the best series in science fiction history. But most he he's written over five hundred books, and most yeah. of his books were nonfiction, right? So so you kind of have to he he balanced it. But um, he's the most prolific author of all time, right? Yeah, although now in today's internet age, like, you know, you have guys like Sean Platt or yeah. Steve Scott's been on the podcast. He's a prolific nonfiction self help writer. Yeah. Now the world's different with, with book writing. Everybody can and maybe should, you know, as you know from Book in the Box, should write a book. There's many reasons to write a book, and the tools for it are easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, the skill's just as hard, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to hit the high bar to get your book. Out there and marketed and exactly. so on. Exactly, you can you can write something over the course of, let's say, uh, two three weeks and get up to fifteen twenty thousand words. Yeah, and you can have it published and on Amazon within twenty four hours. Right, and and it publishers. So originally, the writing world was dominated by let's call it like, you know, now it's five, but maybe it was like six to eight major publishers, and they 
needed your book to be a certain length so they can charge right. for it. Yeah. So, you know, it had to be like 250 or 300 pages. And they would come up with creative ways to make it that long sometimes, right? Yeah. yeah. And often I would see many books where I would think to myself, oh, why this should be... Why is this so yeah, long? why is this long? And what happened was the, uh, the publisher would see a magazine article the author wrote and say, can you extend this to <laughs> a 30-page or a 10-page article to, 80, to 300 words. pages? Yeah. And the author would say, yes, of course, because there would be these huge advances right. back then. And you could see the struggle <sighs> of just making the topic bigger. But now I think the definition of a book has changed because you can just upload it. You can make it a paperback still and mm -hmm. you could upload it to Amazon, make it a paperback, a Kindle, an audiobook. And it could be, I mean, our, our friend Kamal Ravikan, who's been on yeah. this podcast, Love Yourself uh, was a, a bestseller. There's 2,300 reviews of it. Yeah. Uh, it's a massive bestseller. It's literally saved people's, many people's lives. Yeah, and I, it's 8,000 words. Right. So that's the, the that that book, seeing that book and the success of it made me realize the definition of a book has completely changed. Totally, totally. So, and that's also an example where, and and this is will be a good segue to your latest book, Play for a Living, um, but that's a book where he didn't have an advance for it. No, uh, he did it for free. He self-published it, and he and I know it like pays his rent wherever he's living. Oh, yeah. it pays for all his travels. It you know pay. No, I don't want to say it pays for his bills because he does many things, but it could if you wanted it to pay for his bills. And I know many writers like that now, where they didn't take any advance. They did it for free. They played with the definition of a book, so they they chose themselves, so to speak, and and chose their definition of how things should be done, and massive success as a result. Right, you, and you just put yourself out there. So how do you, before we transition to that, uh, how do you decide on when you have to write a book? Because a lot of people, I would guess, might be thinking, well, maybe I should try and write a book. Do you think it's a good idea for them to try it? Or do you think they need to have to feel that impulse? That's a good question. I don't know. I think, so I've written a book a year since 2003. Yeah. And uh, so I have, I have about 18 books out. So maybe in some cases more than one book a year. And uh, this year, 2017, I don't feel the urge to write a book. This might be the first year I don't write a What's book. What's different? Well, I've been really focused on this podcast. Yeah. And I do write every day. I still write articles every day. And I don't know what the difference is. I feel like... I'm just not feeling the urge, but I I feel like it's such an interesting experience to write a book and to say, you know, it's like it's like a a badge of I've done it. Yeah, you know, and I'm really trying is. to experiment with different things. Like I'm really trying to see where can I take creatively this podcast. I've been trying other things. Like last night, I did uh, stand up comedy for the for the Good fourth for time you. in my life. Nice. So so I feel like I'm putting a lot of energy. Like that takes a lot yeah. of energy, even to do it just a couple <laughs> of times. And so I feel like I've been putting a lot of energy into other things, even though I'm still writing every day, right. just not in a direction that I can say, oh, this is a book. Yeah. So have you shared any of your stand up on this podcast? No. Are you going oh, to? Oh, maybe. No, no, I, I can't say I have. I'm not going to because I feel like I'm still like last night was great. Like yeah. it, it was everything I wanted it to be. People laughed at every joke. I experimented with some things I was thinking about, not just in terms of mixing clean with very crude jokes, but also in terms of uh, much more extended, awkward poses, uh, pauses. Right. Because I wanted to see how awkward it could get before <laughs> the audience would start laughing. So I experimented with a couple of different 
things. Yeah. And I just, I didn't know if it would work. It did, it did mostly work, but now I also can see, oh, it worked and I could do it even more. Right. So I want to experiment even more before I release anything. So and also you, I'm using the same, in some cases, not in every case, I wrote some new jokes, but I also use some old right. jokes. So and I've only been doing it four times. So I'm still refining the joke. So I, I don't necessarily want to put it up there and have people expecting the same, you're sure. expecting different jokes right away. Sure. I, I like that. So you're, so you're liking the craft. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Now, two weeks ago, I bombed. I nobody laughed at a single joke. How did that feel? Had you ever died on stage? I've never died on stage before. Oh, congratulations! Yeah. So, <laughs> so I've great... been doing. I've done a lot of public speaking. Yeah. And I've this was my well, third. Public time. speaking is like a safe zone for yeah. the most part. No one's gonna boo you or do like. Yeah. It's no, but totally he, different. Even in public speaking, though, I do a lot of kind of let's say build up and joke telling and, sure. and, and and laughter is often a release for the audience. And they're not expecting it. So they're that, not expecting yeah. it. And that's the difference. With, yeah. with when you're going up at a comedy club where nobody knows who you are and there's no topic at all. Like when you're public speaking, the topic might topic might be entrepreneurship. Yeah. The stand up comedy, you're going up, nobody knows who you are. The MC doesn't even know who I am because I'm not a I, I went up, I go up on these formats where it's all professional comedians and then me. So right. the MC is almost resentful, like who is this guy? <laughs> and and I just happen to know the club owners right. in some cases because I've done podcasts there and, and you know they, a lot of these clubs have podcast rooms and stuff. So so I know the club owners and they say, Oh, we'll come up with this lineup. So I'll have like this lineup of everyone's appeared on Letterman or or, 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 Blair <laughs> right. or whatever. And then there's this guy who looks weird, who's doing these weird jokes. And uh, so it's incredibly uncomfortable and awkward. And, and not only that, it's not like in, in public speaking where if you give like, you know, a joke every few minutes over the course of a half hour, that's like incredible. Right. This is, you kind of have to have people laughing. If you're only up for five minutes, you kind of have to have people laughing every 15 seconds. Yep. So that's like, really difficult. It is so hard and it is such a pure art form in that sense. Have you seen uh, the documentary Comedian? Yeah, I've seen Comedian. I've seen everything yeah. and read everything. Yeah. And, um, and you know, one thing I, I, I realized I was messing up on, and again, I've, I've only done it four times, but I really analyze each time as well as compare myself to my heroes and so on. It's, the, it's again, that gap What's the gap? The enormous gap between me right. and my heroes, many of whom have been on this podcast. Yeah, and I realized there were some jokes I was kind of rushing through when I could have just sort of paused and looked at the audience and made it a little bit awkward, right? Because you're in your own head, and yeah. yeah, and like I'm afraid of any silence. Yep, you know. And so last night I decided, you know what? I'm just going to dive into the silence and Good. let people absorb. The joke, like sometimes yeah. the joke might be a little tricky too. So I need to give them a moment to think about it, and uh, and that's just as applicable when you're doing public speaking too. Those those pauses, those extended pauses, uh, you you think in your head like, oh gosh, people are thinking that I'm you know bombing up here, but they're actually like, oh, this is a thoughtful pause. This this person's you know doing this for dramatic effect. It's well, and and I. I do it in public speaking. Like yeah. that was what was bothering me oh, okay. <laughs> about my bombing last week is yeah. that I felt like for some reason I wasn't connecting with the audience the way I do it with public speaking and right. I couldn't figure out why. So last night 
And I don't mean to segue so much into no, no. I, lo- I love this stuff because I I did my first uh, stand up last year after. Uh, I mean, I had a joke notebook with 200 jokes in it oh, wow. that I'd been keeping for 10 years, and I'm I'm a huge stand up buff, so I I love talking about this. Well, well, I I was really trying to figure out like um, where exactly I was rushing, like mm-hmm. where I was trying to pander for laughs. Did where, you film yourself? Or I did. I okay. do each time so I can watch yeah. it later. And uh, and Jim Norton, the comedian, gave me that advice to film <laughs> yeah. each one. And uh, how, how was your body language? Uh, I think it was good, although I think I can improve on that. Like, okay. here's what, so one thing I did last night was is that I acted out a little of my jokes a little bit more. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but I think I could have done that more. I think you could do a little bit more movement and acting it out. What combined with this silence, yeah, and so people are like, just what that people would be like, what the hell is he doing? And I didn't do that enough even last night. Although I would kind of stop doing it as soon as the laughs started kicking in, whereas I should have let it build up a little more before the punchline. Yeah, and so I'm just there's a lot of subtleties because I use the same pretty much the same jokes as the week before. This time I had jokes on every laugh. Last week I didn't have. I mean, I mean, I had laughs on each joke. Yeah. Last time I didn't have any, and the difference was really the the delivery, the the a little more pauses, a little more uh, recognizing when I was going too far with the crudeness, so I would back off a mm. little bit, and a little more acting it out with each joke, so the, there was more body language in it, mm-hmm. and a little more talking to the audience instead of just being scared of them. Right. <laughs> uh, so it was fascinating. So I think before I put anything online, I would I need to perfect more, which who knows, maybe it'll take years. Yes. So yeah. good man. Good for you. That's but, that's but it really segues cool. now into sure. play for a living. Cause for me, this is something I love doing and I love yeah. playing at. Uh, and I do I try to make as much play in my life as possible. Now you wrote your other book, Play It Away, which we've talked about, but I, we could talk about it again. But I want to, I want to also talk about this play for a living. First off, I want to start off with a, a quote in the middle of it. And this, this book is so beautiful. I'm holding it in my hands. There's basically a quote on every page, plus uh, an illustration of the person giving the quote, and they, and they're beautiful. They're almost like paintings. Are these paintings yeah. each picture? A lot. So we had uh, close to fifty artists around the world contribute all the pieces in the book, uh, and. They, and we just said, do it in your own style, but try and match it up with the person who said the quote. And you have this one uh, quote from right in the middle of the book is Bill Murray, who's almost like my I would be my ideal podcast yeah. guest. But it's such a wise quote. He said, I realized the more fun I had, the better I did. And it's it's really true. Like, uh, And I was just reading an interview with Harold Ramis, who's his, you know, Acting yeah, partner, producing genius. partner, director partner on so many movies from Ghostbusters to Stripes to Caddyshack to Groundhog mm-hmm. he Day. He was brilliant. Yeah. And, and uh, he was telling a story of Bill Murray, just like some, somebody came up, they were walking along and someone came up to Bill Murray and said, hey, I'm a big fan. And Bill Murray just yelled at the guy and said, I'm going to bite your nose. <laughs> and Bill Murray jumped on the guy, like tackled him to the ground and bit his nose. And they're both laughing the whole time. <laughs> So like Bill Murray, really just everything he did, he had fun and play with it. So nobody thought of him as violent. He just was playful with it. Yeah. And 
I think that's really important. It is. And and we love playful playful people because we just don't get that invitation to to play all that often. A lot of our interactions as adults become serious, but it's so liberating to be around people like that. I mean, the Dalai Lama is like like that as well. He'll he'll go up to people. I heard on an interview the other night that he just walked up to somebody and just grabbed him by the nose and said, "You got a big nose," or just greeted them by tickling them. And and you you kind of started this theme with your earlier book, "Play It Away," which which describe how that came about. Yeah, so "Play It Away" came about after you know I was. Uh, in my mid twenties, and I was in a you know a high profile dream job with with my hero Tim Ferriss, and I, I I shifted at some point during that job from this is so fun and exciting, and we get to do cool work all the time, and this is just we get to work on these amazing projects to uh, becoming pretty serious uh, for myself and and focusing more on. Okay, I gotta get I gotta get results. I gotta be efficient, um, and I was just really pushing myself. I was working remote remotely a lot of the time, and uh, what what led up to this like period of, of burnout and anxiety was pushing myself to the to the brink, like depriving myself of sleep. Uh, we Tim Tim hosted this event called Opening the Kimono, where we had. 130 authors and entrepreneurs from around the world coming in, paying 10K a seat. Uh, and I was in charge of this event. And my experience hosting something like this was, yeah, I hosted a, a kegger in college, basically. Like, I just didn't know what I was doing. And so as the event got closer, uh, I realized I can't afford to sleep. <laughs> because what, what we're like, I, I'm always curious about events like this. It seems like too much work to host any event. Yeah. Like what were what were the bottlenecks that were just driving you crazy? Um it was it was a lot of uh back and forth with the hotel uh deciding on and, and fortunately I had help from an amazing woman uh named Susan Dupre and she reached out to me and she was like, "Hey, she offered to work for free." And her experience was I helped Steve Jobs launch the original iPhone. I uh, I've worked with James Cameron, Julia Child. Why she want to work for free? She was like, I I will get access to great people, and I know that more will come of this that I'll benefit from than than uh, I'll gain from you know charging you guys up front. So I was like, great. I handed her a bunch of stuff, and she just ran with it. So it was it was amazing, and she was just a wonderful person. She actually lives in New York. Now let me ask you a um, question, like. Hotels do events all the time. Yeah, can't you just call up the hotel and say we're going to pay? You know, you had 130 people paying 10,000 each, so 130,000. Yeah. Uh, or no, no, more than that. Uh, I I can't do the math. What was <laughs> what's the math? Uh, a 1.3 million. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. So so uh, uh, can't you just say we're going to pay you 100,000? Give us an event. Uh you can and yeah. So it, certain hotels are much better than others, and this we just wanted we went into i went into it with fresh eyes so i was like i'm going to make this the best thing ever and so susan and i would go back and forth on like how can we truly blow these people away so we were setting up wine tastings and well we wanted uh, to have off location uh restaurants uh dining experiences that were really unique we wanted to have sponsors giving them gifts every single day so we we even had i think in in 
Amazon didn't do this at the time. They they preloaded uh, free Kindles loaded with Tim's favorite books. And so we had a special deal with them and all these other sponsors. And meanwhile, I'm coordinating logistics with the guests of like communicating very clearly. Here's how to get from SFO to, to the event. And uh, here's what you can expect. I'm coordinating with all the speakers and making sure like they have their presentations in order. Here's here's how the event is structured. There was there was just a lot of stuff going on, and uh, it, it it stretched my organizational skills to to capacity. And so I hit a point where I was like, I can't sleep during this event, otherwise something could fall apart. That's how it felt at all times. Like mm-hmm. it was just going to fall apart. And uh, so I secretly ordered uh, this smart drug uh, called Modafinil uh, from a pharmaceutical company like in India or Canada. Or I just something. read about this uh, Modafinil last night. Actually, uh, uh, it was on some thread uh, where I saw Tucker mention mm. Modafinil. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's relatively speaking a, a safe smart drug. I don't recommend it or endorse it because I took it for several days in a row. I slept a total of six hours over the course of like three or four days. When you took it, did you feel like an effect right away? Four days. Um, not right away, but within an hour or so. Yeah. And so, so like you would feel like in it, within an hour, you would suddenly feel like kick in, like you were revved up? Not revved up at all. It was mostly like just an ability to have very intense focus and uh, limitless energy, but but not like... But not uncomfortably energy. You know, when you have too much coffee, you hit your caffeine limit. You're like, oh, uh, this is not fun. And but I think it Dave wasn't Asprey like that takes at Modafinil all. as well. I yeah, yeah, these guys. And then uh, they also take uh, a lot of people in Silicon Valley take it because if they're given a speech to investors where they could raise millions of dollars, yeah, they take that. Yeah. And what about? Um, and I don't want to segue too much from the story. Sure. But then there's uh, Nuopept, which is like Modafinil times one thousand. Oh, I don't know. Okay, I've, I've never heard of it. Because I, 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 I've been researching it, but I haven't taken anything. I'm just curious. Yeah. No. I mean, I for for its purpose, it was it was a smart decision. I think overall, because the event went great. It was it was really wonderful. Um, but I got back from that event, and I basically like could feel the the alarm bells going off in my body. You know, my my vision was felt like I was drunk. I couldn't it, like hearing stuff felt weird. It felt like it was coming slowly in in waves, and I just I after that point, I felt like my body was falling apart, and. Uh, I I started having uh, panic attacks and there was which I'd never had before and just like this debilitating anxiety kind of creeped in um, and I was just you know it, it was just exhaustion and for, for for being on top of the ball for for the months leading up to it I I'd, I'd kind of shifted into this intense seriousness right that that carried over going forward there wasn't this period where i was like ah you know we made it it was it was like hey we're going into the next book the 4 hour chef and uh we you know let's hit the ground running so i i just felt like i wasn't with it anymore and all in the same weekend what happened was the deadline for the 4 hour chef got pushed back 
I think six months, a close friend attempted suicide and a family member died. So I took a week and a half off and I came back and I said, Tim, like, I'm just, I'm a mess right now. I think I, I really got to take some time off and, and quit. And I felt horrible. I was shaking going into that meeting because I was like terrified that I was burning a bridge that I'd worked so hard, you know, to to have that relationship and everything. But I was just, I was at the point where I, I just had to take care of myself and spent the next year basically trying everything that I could to get myself out of that state of anxiety, which again, it's, you know, we all experience anxiety on some level, but but not like this. This was different. This was debilitating. It was, it, I found myself isolated because I didn't want anybody I interacted with to catch this weird energy that I had. It felt like I was contagious and it, I, I felt like I was losing my mind. It felt like I was dying. And um, it destroyed so many things in my life. Did you feel like, you know, doing other things, like let's say entering, you know, emotionally connecting with people, like entering into relationships or playing? Or- so, it, But it, it wasn't working. So I, I remember going, a friend of mine set me up on a date with her friend. She's a beautiful, super intelligent uh, woman. And I went on the date and I remember thinking... This is the worst possible time I could go on it. it. Like I know I totally weirded her out, and she actually said later on, like after you know a couple of years later, she was like, you know, that first date that was really like I was very uncomfortable around you. I thought you were just kind of off. And um, my my girlfriend who I who I ended up dating for for several months, I remember her saying to me, um, you know, like, what basically what is wrong with you? And I hadn't told anybody what I was going through at that time. I hadn't even really told Tim the severity of it. I just said, you know, things are, I need to take time off basically. And um, I, I remember finally breaking down and just telling her, I feel dead inside all the time. And I just, I have no idea how to fix it. Did you think of now, obviously when someone says that, yeah, if you were to say that to a psychiatrist, they would immediately prescribe antidepressants. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing. Like, did you? Maybe that would be I, yeah, I went, a good thing. I went to a doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I got an EKG and all that just to make sure I was I was okay. And they were like, "Yeah, you're healthy. You know, you're just deprived of sleep, which was right." But the pills that they prescribed to me when I when I brought them home, you know, I was basically skipping home. Like, yes, finally a solution. And uh, then I looked up the pills, and the more research I did on Wikipedia forums, everything, I came across. The side effects included anxiety, uh, psychosis, insomnia, like the the problems that I was trying to fix. Um, So it made me very hesitant. And I I came across so many anecdotal uh, posts of people who were like, I've been on this pill. It stopped working after two weeks. I'm hooked on it. I can't stop taking it. And Mm -hmm. it's very frustrating because the side effects just amplify over time. So I decided not to take that because I, I, I realized... Whatever situation I was in, I knew I got myself into it and I could probably get myself out, but I just had to figure it out. And it took everything you can list for anxiety treatments, right? Uh, Deep breathing, therapy, journaling, every supplement under the sun, uh, exercise, uh, 
what else? I mean, psychedelic drugs. I was volunteering. I was praying. I was every, everything you could list. I even took a course on how to overcome anxiety. And um, it was so frustrating because none of it stuck. And just like every day you'd wake up was, with worries. Yeah, you'd wake up at three in the morning was, with all the worries. I just felt like what I was- were you worried I, about that because you weren't even working? Well, I just felt like I was constantly in fight or flight. I mm. thought I was like, my survival was constantly on the line. So it's almost as if you like hit some tripwire at some point when you were like, yeah, working for Tim and doing the conference and you couldn't pull back from it. But it was, a, it was an internal tripwire, mm. right? Like no one knew that I was going through this. And, and and if you ask my friends, the, the, when when they read "Played Away," they were like, "I'm so sorry. I I had no idea, right?" So on the surface, for the most part, uh, you you might you might think, "Ah, oh, Charlie's going through something," but you didn't think it was like constant dread. And I wasn't suicidal, but I was thinking like, if this is how my life is going to be, I don't really, I don't know if I can make it because this is brutal every day so um like what did you think would happen what was the dread of it was it was just paranoia everything uh when i when i would walk down the street i would think people would fight me um i would think uh i was going to be arrested by a cop so could there be any chance i'm just kind of running through sure the the dsm4 or whatever was there any chance it's like kind of like a, a bipolar thing or a psychosis thing i don't Think so. I, you know, if if that ever came into, it, it wasn't bipolar. Um, I think there was a period where I was started getting delusional, uh, and I think that was probably from a number of things, nutrient deficiencies and and stuff like that. That based on my best guess and research, mm. um, but I don't think it was any of that. I think it was a number of factors which were. Uh, chronic sleep deprivation, uh, chronic play deprivation, um, over play de- deprivation. Yeah, I like that phrase. Yeah, because <laughs> right. I think uh, we, I think many people suffer from that. Yeah, I I hundred percent agree. Uh, there's a quote in there from Stuart Brown, who was he's the author of Play, and that's the book that kind of flip was my 180 moment. It was the aha that led to recovering in a couple of weeks. Uh, which he says the opposite of play isn't work, it's depression. Mm. And um, the, I mean, the the research is pretty clear. Uh, they've done experiments where they've deprived animals of play. Uh, they give them they give them love, they give them nurturing, all the all the things that they need to survive. You know, food, uh, shelter. And when they deprive them of play, though, they inevitably grow up to be socially and emotionally crippled. Well, you figure there's a strong evolutionary component of play there is so we we every human being plays right and you and you have to what happens is is hunting is a a a critical skill for survival like you have to be able to hunt for food Mm -hmm. but uh you can't hunt all day long because you know when you're hunger is satisfied you're you're not hunting but play in between those moments of hunger uh, you know let's say you go hunting every few days but how do you practice and how do you get in shape and right. stay in shape for hunting? You've got to get really good at play. So, so you know, early, you know, early ancestors of the human species and all basically every animal has to learn how to play as a practice for 
what the real skill they need for survival. Right. In which, by the way, when they're doing the act of hunting, it's doesn't it's not drudgery and boring work for them. It's still fun. Right. It's still a game. So play is yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's essential to our survival. It's how we learn these skills. It's also how we learn empathy and compassion. Like it's how we bond with each other. It's how we learn to explore our environment. So if you talk about people who are anxious and depressed, what are their characteristics? They are often isolated, afraid to explore their environment, right? Uh, They're not moving around very much because they're afraid. So what happened was, for me, I'd, I'd been doing this research and experimentation for a year with minimal results and I stumbled across play by Stuart Brown and I read that book in in one sitting and that was I immediately understood what the problem was. It was it was so clear as day that that was what was missing from my life and all the things all the moments of joy that I'd experienced in my life all the I'd had a very happy childhood, you know. I'd had a very happy, for most of my adulthood, it was happy too. But it was always because I'd been a very playful person. Uh, I, I was always pulling pranks. I was always playing uh, games with my friends and uh, coming up with funny sketches or whatever. And I hadn't been doing that for years. And I'd, I'd approached life so seriously and joylessly, and very much in terms of like. What's the output? What's the outcome? Is this, you know, what's I, what's the money payoff? I, I wonder if like that's this transition from childhood to adulthood that yeah. happens to many people. Like, you know, there's this statistic that I often quote that um, uh, children laugh on average 300 yeah. times a day, but adults laugh on like average three, yeah, three to five times <laughs> a day. And 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 it's scary, like because it is. There is a little bit of a reason for it, in that we have a lot more responsibilities, sure. you know. And and responsibilities are scary, but you still have to. That's such a gap, and we're not really different. Our brains are not really that much different from when we were kids. Like, no, we still need to laugh, right? So, so what did you start doing to to that was what were the what for you was the play that cured the anxiety yeah, and the dread? Yeah, so. For the first exercise they recommend in the book is like do the play history exercise. So what were the activities that you repeatedly and voluntarily turned to when you were a kid that no adult was making you do, no adult was judging or grading you? You were just doing it because of the internal joy and the paycheck that you gave gave to yourself. So what what were those for you? I'm curious. For me, probably like playing chess, uh, riding my bike, um, and I just loved games of any sort, yeah. playing video games, and I loved any board games. So, what were your favorite video games? Uh, well, back in that generation, it was uh, by far Defender or you know games like Asteroids, you know Galaxian, Galaga, yeah. yeah. So all the Atari games. Um, so I loved all those, but chess I was obsessed with. Yeah. So that was definitely my play. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So for for me, it was similar where. I I grew up playing catch in home run derby all the time uh, in my backyard. Uh, I also realized I had a heavy history of like pranks and practical jokes. Um, that I was constantly doing 
sketches or or making stuff up that would make other people laugh. Like that was my biggest payoff. Um, and creating creating art. And so I just said to myself, I'm just going to try and do these things on a daily basis so or as often as possible. At, at first, did you have to force yourself to do it? No. Um, so it actually transitioned really nicely. So I, before that, I'd been doing coffee meetings with people and just sitting around drinking caffeine and talking about how important we were. And uh, then I, I started asking them to do catch meetings in the park or to go on uh, hikes instead. And it immediately had an effect not only on how I felt, but on how people responded to me and the quality of of the meeting itself. Well, I'll tell you uh, an example for me in the past few weeks. So I always have, because of your book, Play It Away, actually, um, I took it to heart and uh, I started doing all my meetings, 100% of my meetings over things like ping pong or backgammon or whatever. So a few weeks ago, uh, I figured I'll meet with the CEO of one of my investments and we hadn't hung out in a couple of years. I wanted to hear an update on how the company was doing. And he said, okay, come to my office uh, anytime. And I said, no, 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 let's meet at uh, ping pong and let's play play some ping pong. And so we met there and rather than him being inundated with like all the distractions in an office and the business-like atmosphere of an office, we're just playing. And then in between each, every couple of games, we're talking and, you know, having a snack or whatever. And I learned that the company was going to get acquired. So huh. I would never have learned this in an official business meeting. And we ended up talking about like really personal stuff yeah. about what he was doing next, what I should do next and and so on. And so it really works on a, on a productivity level and practical level as well. Yeah. And but, but I'll give you one negative yeah, side too. Just, sure. Sorry. To no, 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 go. Sometimes I find... If, I, if I'm unhappy with some aspect in my life, I get a little addicted to like playing chess, for instance. So I'll just play like all night, you know, online chess. And then I use, it's usually a signal to me that something is going wrong with my life. Do you think that's from avoidance? Either avoidance or escapism of some oh, sort. Oh, okay, yeah, escapism. So, so now, I, now I recognize that after like 30 years of doing this, right. that it's, it's a signal rather than necessarily a negative thing sure but there is kind of like a, a little yeah you can too. get hooked yeah yeah i mean i know people who dropped out of college because of that. yeah um which may or may not have been a bad thing but um i've heard from numerous people especially in sales that when they transition to doing these meetings where they go on hikes or they go on little retreats it transforms their sales process and makes it better and they, they've said you know i instead of having clients i have I have somebody who's who was in my wedding. You know, we we actually bonded on a real human level, and I think, I mean, that's why so many business meetings take place on the golf course. I guess yeah. right is having a four hour game. But I mean, it's funny, you know, regardless of politics. Like, yeah. I don't know anything about politics or whatever, but I noticed like the st- people are throwing the statistic out. Like, here's how much how much time each president spends on the golf course, mm-hmm. and Trump, of course, beats everyone. He's on the golf course more than anyone. And so I'm just wondering, I don't know the answer to this, but if he was on the golf course with various prime ministers, that's probably not such a bad thing. Like I kind I of agree. prefer that to him than, than to him just like being on the golf course by himself. I agree. <laughs> right. If if he's with people that he's trying to bond with and spend time with, it might there's be good. no right. There's no better way of doing it. 
But you're not you know, gonna bomb someone you like played golf with. Right. Yeah. I mean, but this is this is important is to not I mean, have you ever played basketball or something with somebody who's taking it way too seriously and is not playful at all? Like yeah. they you you almost have to come down to somebody's level and and keep it fun in order for it to stay a positive experience. So if you're just using it as a, a means to dominate somebody, it's the bonding benefits are gone. Right. I think there is a there is the negative, uh, just like there's so many positive positive aspects, and you have to do it. You got to be careful of as as weird as it sounds there's like a slightly negative aspect to play if it's escapism mm. or too competitive or whatever and yeah. i'm very competitive and very escapist right and very non-confrontational so i'll often escape into play to satisfy some other hole in my life but it is also incredibly useful if i'm i used to if i i used to be a day trader and if i had a really stressful day day trading i would definitely I knew just instinctively to go into play afterwards to yeah. kind of like calm down. Yeah, I mean, recess, right, is is something that it's it's pretty cool. So I think it's Finland is the top uh, in the world in education. And the thing that they do that's pretty different from the United States is they have uh, up to two hours of recess a day, I think it is. Um, and, uh, how, many, and how many hours a day? I think it's up to two. And I, I could be wrong about this, but... I know that a teacher in Texas went over to Finland to study it, an elementary school teacher, and she came back and she said, recess is the big thing they're doing that's totally different from us. Why don't we test this out? Because we have all these students with ADHD, behavioral issues, all this stuff. They started doing three recesses a day from from none, right? Because all these schools have eliminated recess because they Mm. see it's this excess thing. All the behavioral issues stopped. Hmm. everything like the students went from being a mess to being totally fine and so you need recess and that's that's not a hundred percent what i'm advocating i'm just saying you have to do things from a playful standpoint but if you're work 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 all the time you absolutely have to have recess it's essential to your creativity your happiness your ability to do great work your productivity rides on you dedicating time to taking time off of that work and doing something that recharges you. Yeah, so I think it's a good idea to kind of list the things. And I think this is a good idea in general to the question also of how do you find what you're passionate about? Yeah. What are the things you enjoyed doing <laughs> as a kid? You're not being forced. Yeah, and how did it age? Yeah. So let's say you enjoyed basketball. You might not necessarily become a professional basketball sure. player now, but you can use it to play or you mm-hmm. can use it to maybe write a blog about basketball Hobbies. or whatever yeah. these things that you yeah. would do normally, that you used to do for free as a 12-year-old. How can you let it back into your life now? Right. Now, now I think both of these strands that we've been talking about, free and play, kind of came together in this book that that you're going to release soon, you're about to release, Play for a Living, again, this is one of the most beautiful books I've seen. Like it's just Thank a beautiful you. looking book. Yeah. But you went again an alternative route to getting this published. You didn't kind of go for the traditional advance. You played and made a video and put together a Kickstarter. And like what how did you decide to do that? How how did it go? What, what, yeah. what's what's going on? How did I decide to do the, the Kickstarter, Kickstarter or the book? Okay. Yeah. So the Kickstarter, it just felt right. You know, it's this community of creative people. I just wanted, and, it, and I wanted to do it because it seems so much more fun. I've done traditional book launches where you try and drive a bunch of traffic to Amazon. 
But I like the excitement of being able to see the progress and make the community feel like, hey, we're a part of bringing this idea into the world. And, and also was, it's like you bake in um, a, a, an audience of buyers before you even make yes, the book. Yeah, and exactly. you know that this, this is a book that people demand because you hit your Kickstarter goal. Exactly. So what was your initial Kickstarter goal? 10,000. And and what did you end up raising? Uh, we In the first... 35 hours we raised over $10,000 and and we're actually we're about 2 weeks into the campaign at the recording of this podcast and I think we're at uh, close to $15,000. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm I was really really relieved <laughs> that uh we we hit the initial goal uh right off the bat. And uh how did you decide uh, like I mean Sometimes I think a book of quotes is almost a trite way to put together a book. Now you, because you, you, it's easy, you could just go yeah, with hundred yeah, quotes. Yeah. But you, 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 it's it's so beautifully laid out. You have these illustrations and artists of each person. Like this is just like this is a, like here's Larry Page. This is amazing. Like looks like an oil painting of Larry Page. Um, and he says, if we were motivated by money, we would have sold the company a long time ago. Uh, the next one's Brian Cranston. Ever since I stopped worrying about finances, I've made more money than I ever thought I'd make in my life. And I, and I could say that particular quote is really true for me as well. Mm. I think it. I think a decade of my life was ruined, and I really do say ruined. Like it's you're you sh, you're supposed to have no regrets in life. Like you learn from everything. But I think I definitely spent my thirties scared about money. And when I stopped worrying about money and started doing things just for myself. Just, it's amazing how things compounded and exponentially built up. How did you stop worrying about money? I realized I had almost no control over what was happening to my financial life. So rather than just worry about something all day that I had no control over. What do you mean no control? Like I didn't have a normal job. I've always been very entrepreneurial. And yeah. I, I and so I kind of reduced uh, my expenses and I had some money um, saved away. And I just started writing for my own pleasure. Mm. And everybody who I knew from my prior uh, career uh, was like, what the heck is this guy doing? He's talking all about failure and, and depression and despair and how, you know, and then how he came out of it. And suddenly I, I lost all of those, you know, people who were reading me for a decade and, you know, my whole investment business and everything. And then I started building up this new audience that eventually you know, started to pay off and in, in, you know, magnificent ways and, yeah. and pay off in many ways, not just money, but uh, in, in personal satisfaction and, and right. so on. And you didn't go into that expecting like, this is going to be the, the payday. This is where... No, in fact, I I'm, turned away pay. It's the free thing. I turned yeah. away pay for many, many years. How often do you meet people who are financially set, who are still constantly worried about money? Because I've met a number of them. I, uh, this is one story I tell, but I know of one guy who, I, I know the story third hand, but he was at a breakfast and this guy's a world famous billionaire worth about 2 billion, has about 60,000 employees. And apparently in this breakfast, and it's a, a good friend of mine, he was having breakfast with, so I trust the story. The entire breakfast, uh, he was saying, I can't believe this fucking kid, Larry Page has 18 billion and I only have 2 billion. <laughs> And that was the entire breakfast. Like he was complaining about. Are it. you serious, man? Yeah. And so I mean, I you think, can you can be broke as a billionaire. Well, well, recently, I mean, I don't know if you know this story, but like about a year, a little over a year ago, I gave away all my possessions. Yes, and I just live I love in that. Airbnbs. Yeah, and it realized like I can't. 
it's a discipline now for me. Like I won't buy anything new unless I replace something in my bag. So there's only so many things that fit in my one right. bag. Yeah. So if I buy a shirt, I'll throw out a shirt. But so I rarely buy anything. Right. I don't buy books. You know, I'll get it on the Kindle. Yeah. Um, but there's not many expensive things I could buy. Like I can't fit, uh, I don't know, a pinball machine in my bag, for instance, <laughs> and move it around from Airbnb to Airbnb. So I realized very quickly there's there's literally a cap on the amount of money I can spend even if I wanted to. So there's just nothing I can buy. Right. Um, and I'm not going to buy a home, and I'm not going to buy artwork, and I'm not going to buy a car, where it's all the big expensive people. I'm yeah. not going to buy another company. I'm not going to buy a jet. So these are all the expensive things billionaires buy. It's very buy. liberating. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm, I'm envious of that. I like well, it. you could do it. I could. I could. <laughs> um, let me see. What are some of the, what are some of your favorite quotes in here? You know, the, the ones toward the end, I think, are the are the ones that really drive it home for me. I ultimately made this book for for myself, right? As a as a reminder, and or at least that's where it began. Yeah. Um, but uh, Plato, I I love. Uh, what then is the right way of living? Life must be lived as play. Uh, I love Alan Watts's. Uh, instead of calling it work, realize it is play. Um, I forget how you pronounce him. The author of, of Flow. Oh yeah, I can't say his last right. name. Right, no. it's it's impossible. But he he has a great quote in there uh, about. He says, "When when we realize that the boundaries between work and play are artificial, we can begin the real work of making life much more livable." Mm-hmm. I, I like this one. Like you have a quote here from John Rockefeller. Right? When you see any photo of John Rockefeller, who was the richest man of his time, richest American ever. Yeah, if you yeah. adjusted for inflation, right? So yeah, because uh, he basically owned what's now all. They broke up all the oil companies, but you know Exxon, Chevron. You know, all, I don't know how many oil companies there were, but it was like ten biggest oil companies that were combined into Standard Oil. But you always see these photos of him so stern and right. serious. You never think of him as someone who thinks about play. But here's a quote. I was early taught to work as well as play. My life has been one long, happy holiday, full of work and full of play. I dropped the worry on the way, and God was good to me every day. Yeah. So, uh, you didn't think of him as a as a I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, and then here's, of course, our friend Tim Ferriss. I believe life exists to be enjoyed. Uh what are, where are some other quotes here? There are a few at the end there. Uh, here's the Alan Watts one, Plato. Um, here's John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods, who's a very playful guy. Actually, I always enjoy stories about him. Choose love instead of fear. If you do, a wonderful life of adventure awaits you. Uh, here's Michael Jordan. Just play, have fun, enjoy the game. And I think there's something to that said to be that there's something to be said for that as well. Like that was his work, basketball, but he always had to make sure it was, he had to remind himself that it was play. Mm-hmm. You know, and this, you have a similar quote in there from Joe DiMaggio that, if, you know, once it's not play anymore, uh, it's not a game. Right. And uh, then it becomes work. And so I think kind of gamifying your work also is really important. And And I don't think people do that enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just approaching it from a spirit of playfulness is pretty easy thing to do. You just have to get back into the practice again. And it's like, you could do it as an experiment. Like, uh, like even like me doing this stand-up comedy last night, it's not like I'm going to make a career out of it. I just want to experiment doing it and see right. what happens. Just try stuff. Yeah. There's, there's a, a great book called Strategic Play 
So if you work at a company and you want to like implement little exercises you could do before meetings or whatever, that's that's a great book. But I know the the CEO of Lego, he uh, has a side business where he just gets executives together and has them build uh, things with Legos together to, to help them great. bond. And and actually, that's that's become an effective form of therapy for autistic kids. It lowers their their score on the autistic spectrum, and they're able to to bond much more easily. So, so when's the book coming out? Um, as soon as the campaign's over on May 11th, I'm sending it to the printers. Uh, I, I found out mid-campaign that uh, Ingram Spark actually now uh, does print-on-demand hardcovers. So oh, really? once, once the, the initial uh, run runs out, I'm going to be able to have it be on Amazon print-on-demand. Thank goodness. And uh, how much is it going to cost you per book? This is a this is a colorful, expensive looking book. It's it kind is. Of slick. It is. It is. Uh, initially on Kickstarter, it's uh, thirty five per copy. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know what the the final tally is going to be because the cost of printing hardcover color books is astronomical. Like the the copy that you're holding, it's not going to be more than thirty five though. No, It'll no, be like I, ten, eight. I, I, I don't know if it can be that low, uh, but it, it, I mean the cost of printing that copy alone on blurb was $140. I want to give one shout out because I yeah. noticed something in here. The designer also designed the book, the, the interior design of, of not only Choose Yourself, but she did a really fantastic job. She did a fantastic job in everything. Yeah, She went above and beyond on Reinvent Yourself, my yes. latest book. Erin uh, Tyler, Erin Tyler Design, great She's choice. She's the best. She's one of my close friends and yeah, i She's the best book designer in the world, I think. Yeah, I always <laughs> recommend her. She also did uh, my friend uh, Wendy Simmons' book on on North Korea. Um, but uh, well, what books would you recommend for further study on the benefits of play, and what or what games would you recommend? Oh, okay. So um, I would do, I would recommend the ones that I mentioned. So play strategic play for companies. Uh, play it away is good if you're going through a, a dark time or or a funk of anxiety. Uh, with games, I always recommend to people to give improv a shot. Uh, yeah. it is it is very liberating to do improv. Whenever I see people come out of an improv class, they're always like exhilarated. Yeah. And they've definitely bonded with all their friends in the yes. class. Yeah. And and to a person to to a lot of people they think uh, no, that's that's terrifying or to, but to anybody who's caught in this serious mode, nothing breaks you out of that faster and nothing liberates you more than realizing if I start saying yes to everything, life is so much easier and more fun. Uh, that that was the thing, the force multiplier that rippled into all other areas of my life, and that was the thing that I attribute to having the biggest effect on on eliminating anxiety so quickly was being a part of that, tapping back into that for me. Um, and other other games, I mean, I'm a big fan of going to the park and throwing the aerobia around. Yeah, because uh, it gets you active. Yeah. It gets you jumping it's, around. It's unwieldy enough that you're having to chase after it and yeah. stuff. And I mean, I, I have a whole list of activities you can do and play it away, but um, it really boils down to get back in touch with yourself, your your own play history. All right. Well, Charlie Hone, author of both Play It Away and Play for a Living, 
Uh, thanks once again for coming on the show. Thank you so and much. I think this, this is great. great advice, both from a practical point of view and a health point of view and everything. I'm going to, I'm going to go and play the rest of the day. Awesome. Thank you so much, James. For more from James, check out the James Altucher show on the choose yourself network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey everyone. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Before you go, I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. I really love reading these and thought it would be fun to share yet another review. Bernardo Bernal said, we listen to your podcast religiously, condensed food for thoughts and the formulas to access the best in life. My family in Italy and Spain listen to you as well. Muchos gracias, grazie mille. And Stan Dubin said, it's the questions he asks. Too many podcast hosts ask either vanilla questions of their guests or they ask the same ones over and over again. Very little digging, very little depth. James A. is different. Yes, he interrupts the guests a bit too many times, but I can live with it. Phew, good. I was worried he wouldn't be able to live with it. His ability to get in there and get several layers deep is worth five stars. So again, thank you for listening. Stan, thanks for that review. Bernardo, thanks for that review. Anna Scheinman, Andrew Roan, the Unicorn Queen, Soul Surf Recovery, and every other person out there who is listening and sharing. I really, really can't thank you enough for your ongoing support and reviews. Thanks. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.